Chapter 18 of The Pot Hunters by P.G. Woodhouse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sahil Dalal from in The Pot Hunters by P.G. Woodhouse, in which the affairs of various persons are wound. Well, he said, you're rather late. Any luck? We found him, sir, said Toby. Really? That's a good thing. Where was he? He'd fallen down a sort of quarry place near where MacArthur lives. MacArthur took him home with him, with him to tea and sent him back by a shortcut, forgetting all about the quarry. And Thompson fell in and couldn't get out again. Is he hurt? Only twisted his ankle, sir. Then where is he now? They carried him back to the house. MacArthur's house? Yes, sir. Oh, well, I suppose he'll be all right then. Graham, just go across and report to the headmaster, will you? You'll find him in his study. The head was immensely relieved to hear Tony's narrative. After much internal debate, he had at, at last come to the conclusion that Jim must have run away and he had been wondering how he should inform his father of the fact. You are certain that he is not badly hurt, Graham? He said when Tony had finished. Yes, sir. It's only his ankle. Very good. Good night, Graham. The head reti retired to bed that night, filled with a virtuous resolve to seek Jim out on the following day and speak a word in season to him on the subject of crime in general and betting in particular. This plan he proceeded to carry out as soon as afternoon school. When, however, he had arrived at the babe's house, he found that there was one small thing which he had left out of his calculations. He had counted on seeing the invalid alone. On entering the sick room, he found there Mrs. MacArthur, looking as if she intended to remain where she sat for several hours, which indeed actually was her intention and Miss MacArthur, whose face and attitude expressions expressed the same, only if anything more so. The fact that the babe, a very mom monument of resource on occasions, as he told Jim, given them the tip not to let the old man get him, unless he absolutely chucked them out, you know. When he had seen the headmaster approaching, he had gone hurriedly to Jim's room to mention the fact with excellent results. The head took a seat by the bed and asked with a touch of nervousness after the injured ankle. This induced Mrs. MacArthur to en embark on a discussion concerning the ease which, with which ankles are twisted, from which she drifted easily into a discussion on rug rugby football, its merits and demerits. The head, after several vain attempts to jerk the conversation into other groups, gave it up and listened for some ten minutes to a series of anecdotes about various friends and Mrs. MacArthur's who had either twisted their own ankles or known people who had. The head began to forget what exactly he had come to say that afternoon. Jim lay and grinned covertly through it all. When the head did speak, his first words roused him effectually. I suppose, Mrs. MacArthur, your son has told you that we had a burglary at the school? Hang it, thought Jim. This isn't playing the game at all. 
Why talk shop, especially that particular brand of shop, here? He wondered if the head intended to describe the verb and then sprang to his feet with a dramatic wave of the hand towards and say, There, Mrs. McArthur, is a there lies the viper on whom you have lavished your hospitality, the sneaky and systematic serp serpent you have been induced by underhand means. Look upon him and loathe him. He stole the cups. Yes, indeed, replied Mrs. MacArthur. I have heard a great deal about it. I suppose you have never found out who it was that did it. Jim lay back resignedly. After all, he had not done it. And if the head liked to say he had, well, let him. He didn't care. Yes, Mrs. MacArthur, we have managed to discover him. And who was it? asked Mrs. MacArthur, much interested. Now for it, said Jim to him. We found there was a man living in the village who had been doing some work on school grounds. He had evidently noticed the value of the cups and determined to try his hand at a poacher. He is well known as a poacher in the village, it seems. I think that for the future he will confine himself to that uh, industry, for he is hardly ever to shine as a professional housebreaker. No. Oh, well, that must be a relief to you, I am sure, Mr. Percival. These poachers are a terrible nuisance. They do frighten the birds so. He spoke as if it were an unamiable eccentricity on the part of the poachers, which they might be argued out of if the matter were put before them in a reasonable manner. The head agreed with her and rose to go. Jim watched him out of the room and then breathed a deep, satisfying breath of relief. His troubles were at an end. In the meantime, Barrett, who, having no inkling as to the rate at which affairs had been progressing since his visit to the Dingle, still imagined that the secret of, it, of the hollow tree belonged exclusively to Reed himself, and one other was much exercised in his mind about it. Reed candidly confessed himself baffled by the problem. Give him something moderately straightforward, and he was all right. This secret society and dark lantern style of affair was, he acknowledged, beyond him. And so it came about that Barrett resolved to do the only thing he could think of, and go to the head about it. But before he had come to this decision, the head had received another visit from Mr. Roberts, as a result of which the table where Sir Alfred Venner had placed Plunkett's pipe and other accessories so dramatically during a previous interview now bore another burden, the missing cups. Mr. Roberts had gone to the dingle in person, and by adroit use of the divinity which hedges a detective, had persuaded a keeper to lead him to the tree where, as Mr. Stokes had said, the cups had been de deposited. The head's first act on getting the cups was to send for Welch, to whom by right of conquest they belonged. Welch arrived shortly before Barrett. The head was just handing him his prizes when the latter came into the room. It speaks well for Barrett's presence of of mind that he had grasped the situation and decided on his line of action before Welch went, and the head turned his attention to him. Well, Barrett, said the head. If you please, sir, said Barrett, blandly, may I have leave to go to Stapleton? Certainly, Barrett. Why do you wish to go? This was something of a poser, but 
Parrot's brain worked. I wanted to send a telegram, sir. Very well, but with suspicion. Why did he not ask Mr. Philpot? Your housemaster can give you leave to go to... I couldn't find him, sir. This was true, for he had not looked. Ah, very well. Thank you, sir. And Barrett went off to tell Reed that in some mysterious manner, the cups had come back on their own account. When Jim had congratulated him himself that everything had ended happily, at any rate as far as he himself was concerned, he had forgotten for the moment that at present he had only one pound to his credit instead of the two which he needed. Charter is, however, had not. The special number of the glowworm was due on the following day, and Jim's accident left a considerable amount of copy he to be accounted for. He questioned Tony on the subject. Look here, Tony, have you time to do any more stuff for the... My dear chap, said Tony, I have not half done my own bits. Ask Welch. I asked him just now. He can't. Besides, he only writes at about the rate of one word a minute. And we must get it all in by tonight at bedtime. I'm going to sit up as it is to jellygraph it. What's up? Tony's face had assumed an expression of dismay. Why, he said, Great Scott, I, I never thought of it before. If we jellygraph it, our handwriting will be recognized, and that will give the whole show away. Char Charters took a seat and faced this difficulty in all the, its aspects. The idea had never occurred to him before, and yet it should have been obvious. I'll have to copy the whole thing out in a copper plate, he said desperately at last. My aunt, what a job. I'll help, said Tony. Welch will, too, I should think, if you ask him. How many jelly machines can you raise? I've got three, one for each of us. Wait a bit, I'll go ask and ask Welch. Welch, having first ascertained that the matter really was a pressing one, agreed without hesitation. He had objections to spoiling his sleep without reason, but in moments of emergency, he put comfort behind him. Good, said Charteris. When this had been settled, be here as soon as you can after eleven. I'll tell you what, we'll do the thing in style and brew. It ought not take uh, more than an hour or so. It'll be rather a rag than otherwise. And how about Jim's stuff? asked Welch. I shall have to do that, but as you can't, I've done my own bits. I think I'm re I'd better start now. He did, and with success. When he went to bed at half past ten, the glowworm was ready in manuscript. Only the copying and printing remained to be done. Charter is was out of bed and in study just at, as eleven struck. Tony and Welch, arriving half an hour later, found him hard at work copying out an article of topical interest in a fair round hand quite unrecognizable as his own. It was an impressive scene. The gas had been cut off, as it always was when the house went to bed, and they worked by the light of candles. Occasionally, Welch, breathing heavily in his efforts to make his handwriting look like that of a member of a board school, second standard, blew one or more of the candles out, and the others grunted fear. 
That was all they could do. For evident reasons, a vow of silence had been im. Charteris was the first to finish. He leaned back in his chair, and the chair, which at a reasonable hour of the day would have endured any treatment, collapsed now with a noise like a pistol shot. Now you've done it, said Tony, breaking all the rules by speaking considerably above a whisper. Welch went to the door and listened. The house was still. They settled down once more to work. Charterers lit the spirit lamp and began to pre the others toiled painfully on at their own round hand. They finished almost simultaneously. Not another stroke, I do, said Thilav had something to drink. Is that water boiling yet? It was at exactly a quarter past two that the work was finished. Never again, said Charteris, looking with pride at the piles of glowworms stacked on the table. This jelly business makes one beastly sticky. I think we will keep the print in future. And they did. Out of the twenty or more numbers of the glowworm published during Charteris's stay at school, this was the only one that did not come from the press. Readers who have themselves tried jelly graphing will sympathize. It's a curious operation, but most people will find one trial quite sufficient. That special number, however, reached the record circulation. The school had got its journey money by the time it appeared and wanted something to read in that train. Jim's pound was raised with ease. Charteris took it round to Jim at Babe's house, together with a copy of the special number. By Joel, said Jim. Thanks awfully. Do you know, I'd absolutely forgotten all about the glowworm. I was about to have written something for this number, wasn't I? And con considering the circumstances, that remark, as Charteris was at some pains to explain to him at that time, contained, when you came to analyze it, more cynical immortality to a cubic foot than any other half-dozen remarks he, Charteris, had ever heard in his life. It passes out of the realm of the merely impudent, he said, with a happy recollection of a certain favorite author of his, and soars into the boundless empyrean of pure cheek. End of chapter 18 Recording by Sahil Dalal from India End of the Pot Hunters by P. G. Woodhouse.